Welcome to True Alignment. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Thanks for joining us. We're live from the Gronowski Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. And you never skip a beat on that, do you? <laughs> and welcome to True Alignment, where, where the conversation is all about alignment. Alignment in our lives at a personal level, in our relationships, in our communities, uh, the people that we work with, in our organizations, our teams, and, um, and the greater alignment as uh, we look out across society and globally and and uh, the universal context for alignment. So I can't help it. The movie reference has got to come in really early because the love actually, right? Love really is. Alignment is. All around you. All around you. <laughs> there it is. I can, I can feel it in my fingers. I can feel it in my toes. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know, it's funny. I guess you, you can say tell that. from that that we've got another voice in. That wasn't Jim. Jim's here too. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey guys, welcome how's, back. Good. How, how's how's the family, wife and baby? Good, good. Uh, Kyla and Juniper, and uh, Juniper's starting to roll over, so that's pretty awesome. Uh-huh. So it's any day now. We'll be like Ken said, chasing, chasing around. Yep. Oh. And uh, she's cooing and trying to talk, so it's fun. <laughs> Great. How are you doing, Kurt? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. We've been looking forward to this. I'm very happy to be here, yes. Yeah, yeah our guest, Kurt Gerwitz. We'll introduce him in a minute. I have more small talk to make. So, uh, uh, K, uh, Kurt with a K. <laughs> Kurt with a K. Kurt with a K. Yes. Um, uh, small talk. Please go ahead. Uh, just, just a little comment before we get on because, you know, I so we, it's been a little while since we recorded an episode. Yes. And, and you know, I always, I always so enjoy our intro music from Nick Smarto and the boys. Yes. Right, the skinny. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, you know, yesterday and and hello to everybody. At Google, always good thing to do. Indeed, indeed. So, um, you know, music's just it's just in your soul. Yeah. So you know, yesterday with the passing of Tina Turner, uh, you know, I was in the car, which I I think there's no better place to listen to music than in the car. Um, there's just something about it for me. But the your age, they played uh, Proud Mary. You know, the whole extended version with, with her and Ike Turner. And you know, that's just such a, that intro she does about, you know, nice and easy. And, you know, yeah. we're going to start easy, but we're going to finish rough. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, there's, there's something that tingles in your soul about hearing that song. Um, uh, certain, and when you think back to that, how many decades ago, you go back when that was first released and you kind of look at it, that's pretty raw. That's yeah. right there. Yeah. Totally, totally. Right, and that no horn hiding. intro. And there is no hiding in that, in that yeah, anywhere. That's no. a great tune. Yeah. And so well done. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I just, I can, it brings me back to, you know, my, the music, the way I intersected with music with my dad and um, just, you know, music's just a kind of a great connector. Yeah. Absolutely. And yesterday in, in the same breath, it was uh, a shout out to Bob Dylan, um, Day late, happy birthday. He turned 82. And um, still doing his, I don't know, 90, 100 shows a year on the road. Absolutely Crazy. amazing. Uh, my brother recently saw him uh, as part of the front end of the tour he's on over in Germany. And he said it was just fantastic. Wow. Just a great performance. And like any other artist, you can have your on days or off days. Except for, of course, this podcast, which is always on. But, the, the, you know, and so there's, a, there's that... Um, that's just a consistency over that many shows a year and to be able to succeed at that level is amazing. Well, we're feeling this quite acutely, right? I mean, as we, um, I forget how many episodes we got out our first year, 37, 38, and now we have some life that's in the way. And, um, you know, it's hard to be that consistent with things like this. Yeah. And then there's a there's a wonderful uh, learning that comes with that. Is you, you just said, you know, and then life gets in the way, and what does it get in the way of, and how? And then back to the idea of we need to be able to integrate all, all the different aspects of our lives and uh, work towards aligning as we do that. And also a great reminder, um, and just to give context to it, uh, you may recall that I had a that I went to the Cleveland Clinic for a surgery. In February, only to discover that I need another one. That I needed another one, which then we did in May. So it's been the front end of the year has just been one big you know, um, recovery cycle that I've been in. And a quick reminder that the uh, the, the most significant events in our lives are unforeseen. 
and they just come out of nowhere and the best laid plans and this whole idea of, of uh, what gets in the way, what is just amazing because at the end of it, it's all different pieces of life that we have to be able to integrate. And there's a, there's a certain level of acceptance and letting go of control and, and uh, not living with this false ideal that we, that we can manifest life in the way that we want because life is going to be happening to us. Yeah. I, you know, this is, this is actually a wonderful segue for our, for our guest today and Kurt Gerwitz. Um, I, Kurt, I'm going to share a little bit of the origin story about how you and I got introduced. Um, somebody that used to work here at Regis, and I, I had it wrong originally, and Kurt corrected me, knew Kurt's mom. Yeah, that's right. Knew Kurt's mom, and somehow he was here in town, and, and she said, you have to meet. And when, when Kurt and I met, and remember Regis University and, and this business college is inside of a Jesuit university, and, and the first time you and I met, uh, you shared with me that you were, you were in the Jesuits, which is not something, I mean, the Jesuits are uh, an odd thing in the sense of, we talk about it like we know everything about it inside the walls here, but outside the walls, people don't really know what that is. So, you know, when I say I work at a Jesuit institution, people will say to me, are you a Jesuit? No. They'll ask a, a, a woman that works here at Regis, are you a Jesuit? Which women can't be Jesuits. Um, so people don't really know. But the fact that you were in there, and I think as Edgar sharing this uh, kind of, you know, what happens in our lives and what makes us consider and, and reconsider and constantly re- reevaluate, you know, Kurt, you and I met, and then I heard this story, and then you worked in finance, and now you're teaching finance classes in our MBA, the best finance class in Colorado. But um, that's a whopper of a journey to go from being in the Jesuits to this. So tell us the Kurt story. How did you? Well, I'll, I'll start with the absurd version of it that's probably <laughs> probably most probably most memorable or, or uh, the sound clip for the for the podcast is that I, I went from a radical fanatic follower of Christ uh, to the literally had the job as a money changer, which is if, if you know, if we know our gospels, when Jesus gets uh, loses his temper, gets angry and throws people, throws the money changers out of the temple because it's God's house and it's a place for prayer, not a place for commerce. Um, so I've, I'm, I, the pendulum has swung back for me. Uh, I found I'm, I am finding a happy middle ground in, in, in my, uh, in deep into my forties here. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, uh, you know, joining the Jesuits, um, you're right. Like I, I do a lot of, I've, I've done a lot of explaining this to people and, uh, to get to alignment quickly, I usually just ask, you know, are you Catholic? And then even within that realm, there's such a wide a breadth. Yeah. yeah. There's such diversity in, in that experience of being Catholic or having gone to Catholic school. But so then it's like, okay, so you understand your regular priests. And then do you understand the ordered priests, the priests that come from an order, such as the Christian brothers or the Jesuits, for example. And then, so then I, you know, then I say, well, look, I took, uh, I took the vows uh, temporary vows. I took one year vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And we lived in community. And then I just quickly tell people like what I did. For, I was only in for one year. So I, I had joined spiritual boot camp, we call it. And it's a two year process before you take permanent vows. So I, I will tell people that I was engaged to the church, but I did not marry her. And it is a, an exploratory process. So, um, when it didn't work out for me that that was my path, uh, that was, that's a good outcome. It's like science. When you have results, you're happy with, with whatever they teach you and tell you. What was the decision point for joining in the first place? And that's, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I got, I have a long version of this and a short version. I'll tell you the short version. If you want the long version, the you long can, version. I'll let you pull it we'll out. Have of to me. Get the, we'll have to get the scotch out. Yeah. Uh, I'll go the short version first. Um, the short version is, um, yeah, it, it, it's something that, you know, that the idea sparks in you, in me, and, and, and a lot of my, a lot of people who follow this path have the same, a similar story that the start, the spark starts, um, you know, as, as you're becoming an adult. So I was 16 years old, and I was, uh, his father, Bart Geiger, was teaching theology at my, uh, my Jesuit high school that I was going to. Um, and then, you know, so fast forward, it was eight years later. 
that I'm, you know, filling out the paperwork uh, to, and they want you to try to, you know, they want you to experience the vows uh, for a year before you join also. So the, the job, the application itself is a, is an adventure. It's a, you know, it's a full psychological evaluation. Um, and IQ test because the Jesuits really are, um, they're educators. They want you to um, be able to get a PhD. It's kind of the, the, the educational standard. And, um, and so on the first day, I, they, they ask us to give a sermon and to tell our story why we're there. And I went, I, I went full in, and I just, I just spoke a metaphor. And I said, uh, my friend uh, called me on the phone. And I was sitting there watching TV, eating a po' boy, because we're, we're in southern Louisiana, so we're going to call a hoagie sandwich a po' boy. And, uh, and my friend needed help. And so uh, you hang up the phone, and then you look at the TV and the, and the po' boy, and you look at how comfortable you were, and you think that there's really no question at that point in your narrative on what do I do now. You go and help your friend. So I like that metaphor because um, the, the key word here would be it's a calling. And so I was, I was certainly called to join. I don't believe, you know, it's, it's certainly not God's will that I'm a Jesuit today, obviously, because I'm happily married and not a Jesuit. Uh, but I learned a ton about spirituality and, um, you know, it's a 500-year-old a, a institution that's been studied by, the, by all the, uh, well, th we were told, it, we, they were studied by the KGB. You know, they, um, you know, at times controversial in history, but always have a standard of excellence that uh, I'm proud of. Yeah. Uh, we use a book here in the Innovation Center written by uh, Chris Lowney, who was also uh, once a Jesuit, but uh, left. He must have been one of the money changers, too, to go to work for J.P. Morgan. Um, and he wrote the book, Heroic Leadership. Um, and, you know, he talks about many of those Many of those traits, uh, the subtitle of his book is something like Leadership Lessons from a 450-year-old global company. It's a little bit older book now. Um, but that was the Jesuits because J.P. Morgan had put him in management training. And a lot, of the, a lot of the things they did in management training were things they did naturally in the Jesuit order. I find that to be real, uh, very true in terms of leadership because you have the kind of the pillars of of um, that exploration. And so what does leadership look like from the Jesuit tra you know, perspective or tradition? And um, it opens up with the idea of awareness. So, and simply when you look at the design of so much of today's leadership development, it, that's, that's pretty much at the, at the core, and it is. It's the core of the work that we do because alignment is really about, um, about understanding your own behavior and then the power of choice, the conscious choices that you have in, in your actions, what you do and say, and how do you create alignment through that? And if you look at the history of it, or let me, let me just add this one story about my history of it and how alignment at something that, that you might, at first glance, a person might look at this and think, well, that's subtle or small. Um, but then in my experience, you know, over time, over history, it made a profound difference. So the Jesuits, um, you know, we have the idea of the Magis, which is doing what is what is in um, when when given a choice between things. One of the heuristics, the rule of thumb to ask yourself is, what is uh, what gives the greater glory to God? So the Magis mean you know um, like ad majorem del glorium is the is the phrase for the greater glory of God. And so you're not, you, you're kind of facing it with a choice and it's like, well, the, it's all good choices. Well, so which one's greater, which one's better? And that's in the Jesuit charism. I, I found myself teaching at a, uh, it was a, it was hosted at a Jesuit church. It was a San Miguelian school. So what I, what I tell people is a, it was a Catholic charter school, but it was run by the Christian brothers. And these are, these are the, uh, the institution that, I, as I understand it, has founded education the way we understand it today, where you have one teacher standing in a room of multiple students. At, you, we have to imagine that at some point in human history, that was not the norm, that the norm was, you know, only rich and one-on-one -on -one tutors, and everything else was, you know, children just making it work, learning from their parents and mostly working in the fields to 
keep us all fed. And then there was a third charism in the room, which was the school was actually run by the school sisters of Notre Dame. <laughs> so we would, we would pray to uh, Blessed Teresa of Gerhardinger, to uh, St. Ignatius, and to San Miguel. And so we would say the three prayers. So it was like this mixture of, and to an outsider, to a non-Catholic perhaps, they, it would just look like a room of Catholics. But to, when you're in the room, you, you got this, you could see the difference between the, these orders. And uh, there's, a, there's one more I can add to this story, which is I spent two years at a, a different school. It was, the, um, it was the Brothers of the Holy Cross. And it is the Fathers of the Holy Cross, so it's the same order that runs Notre Dame, which is the you know, predominant or preeminent uh, archetype football team yeah the, the, the catholic school the catholic, the catholic football right. team yes the, the notre dame there and they had a they had a separate charism about becoming the man that you are that's what we got to throw rudy in the mix as a movie reference like there's no way you can't say rudy after you mention notre dame sorry sorry yeah so well the point <laughs> i'm trying i'm wandering around to this point here is that um the san miguelian uh charism or the the de la salle charism that's the same one the la Salian. Uh, charism, that is, uh, you know, they they would help um, anyone. They would help anyone in the, um, and so the, the way schools developed is that, that that you would draw a line on a map, or draw a circle on a map, and that's the area, and then you would help everyone in that area. Well, the, if you know St. Louis and, or New Orleans, the, the, the Jesuit schools Jesuit high schools there are drawing from the entire area and they're drawing the best students because they think that that's the best way to help God is to grab the best and the brightest, get, you know, reach into the power structures at the top. And that's where we're going to affect change and do social justice work and, and transform the world and bring about a kingdom of heaven through that, through these methods of reaching to where the power is. Whereas the De La Salle or in St. Louis, it was CBC um, Christian Brothers College Prep, they would, you know, they would, they would have different tracks for students, and those students could, you know, like you, you could learn at a lower level, um, but you, but you needed to be from the neighborhood. So it was, it was just this, this little thing that was written down. Here's the conclusion: this little thing that was written down, this Madge's idea from 500 years ago, translated into profound differences in these institutions 500 years later. This is this is such a business uh, analogy right here, right? I mean, this idea, that, and I think you said it earlier the, that the for all intents and purposes, if somebody walked in, they'd say there's a group of Catholics, but the people in the room knew there was differences amongst them, and and I think you know the tendency of a business leader to say, you know, all my people are their version of Catholics, and yet they're all different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can we, we see that in our work so much, Edgar. And then there's also the idea of the interpretations that take place and how important it is to go back to understanding um, the meaning of the words. And it goes beyond terminology. It goes on into the into the value and belief system that it represents and how that then comes to life. And you know, we're talking about culture. We're talking about organizations in that lens of, of how they operate, much like in your example... You don't quite see the culture from outside, but when you're in it, heads up. And so, you know, getting a seat on the bus, you know, life on the bus can be very different and and uh, and very unique. And understanding those elements of uniqueness, or what then allow the individuals in the context to define the definitions of you know to create definitions of success. What does success really mean? And what's the expectation for my own success compared to those that? in the hierarchy and have power and are looking and seeking to uh, to elevate that and further it. It's a, it's a heck of a... And and that's the environment that you were in in Louisiana? Uh, so, no, that, so that job was in St. Louis, Missouri. That was Missouri, a, yeah, excuse me. I had, I had left the Jesuits in Louisiana and I spent two years um, as a behavioral interventionist in the inner city in St. Louis, Missouri. And that, that's a... Yeah, it's a, quite an adventure. Uh, it's a recipe for burnout. Uh, a lot of social workers will burn out after two years, and so right. 
Um, but I wanted to add um, that, that to me, the big lesson here, so that all that happened to me in my early 20s. And then later when I'm working on the board of an organization, um, a good one in New, Orle- in New Orleans that was uh, building houses called Project Homecoming. And we would spend a lot of time on the mission and vision. For me, it was like the power of a constitution, like when the, the power of the forming documents, or I heard you, you know, I heard you just mentioned the definition of success and, and the power of the written word and the power of each word. And so I would have, I would have pulled my, I was still even somehow pulling my hair out while we were parsing apart. What does this word mean? What does that word mean? I was like, no, we, we should be in the field right now driving nails into wood to build people's houses. And we're sitting here talking about this mission and vision and how could that be so important? But, um, but I had a context for how it could be so important on, on a 500 year scale. It was tremendously important. Many, many teach, you know, uh, models of leadership through uh, mission, vision, values. Um, Edgar, of, co- of course, you know, every organization we work has work with has, has these words down. Yeah, or at least, yeah, or a statement of purpose. What do you do if they don't? I don't know that I've ever worked with an organization. That I, you know, I think here's the challenge. I don't think it's that they don't have them. I think it's that they have them and they don't, don't fare on the yet. work. Well, yeah, there's that. They have them, and then the behaviors aren't aligned, and leadership doesn't role model and reinforce the, the, the aligned behaviors. So that's one aspect of it. And I think there's also the other one that says that because another organization, we see this being used a lot, we use it. So definitions of teamwork or we work with integrity. And um, that's actually a real fun aspect of the work we get to do is to ask them to define to say, here's the words that you're using. Let's define this and let's talk about how it comes to life. Oh, it looks, yeah. And yeah, and how does it show up in your strategies, your customer experience, your employee experience? How how do, how does that um, happen, and what does that look like? And that that becomes a really really that's a a really um, say fertile conversation. There's a lot there because one of the things that happens is everybody in the room is going to have an interpretation. They're going to have their experience, their past experience that they bring with them. And then there's also those that are the keepers historically. So it may not be a 500-year-old institution, but an organization that's been around 17, 18 years and is constantly we're working with one now, 17 years mm-hmm. in business, and they're in rapid growth, and they're adding a lot of people. And the clarity through which they communicate the essence of what the organization is about becomes critical. And becomes critical in terms of the onboarding, how people integrate into the culture, um, how they contribute to it. Those are all aspects of, of having that kind of conversation and, and doing it well up front. And also talking about how things happen. Sometimes it's easy to define, and unless people are able to understand what it looks like behaviorally, much like behavioral intervention, there you go, right? It's, it's yeah, it takes work, it takes effort, and it needs to be continuous, so, Kurt, how did you, and I, I love that story. Uh, I've heard you tell it multiple times, but what was the decision point for leaving the Jesuits? Um, if I'm, if I'm going to tell the truth, um, they asked me to leave. Okay. And I, I uh, but they knew something that I didn't see. They saw something I didn't see, and I saw it quick enough. Um, one is that, uh, speaking of alignment, they, they knew that the happiest people in that lifestyle of it's and then we're and to those who don't know it's the lifestyle of a monk uh it, are introverts on the uh whether you want to look at the myers-briggs or i like the big five personally <laughs> and uh and i am the yeah. <laughs> yeah i just have to laugh because as soon as you said that i'm like oh yeah that doesn't fit um i've 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 never been in a group where we took the Myers-Briggs and I didn't score the highest score in extroversion in the room. <laughs> so I, I know who I am and, uh, and the, the, the monk life was, uh, was going to be a struggle for me and the, and, and the people around me mostly. But the, uh, you know, the real God's narrative here is that my father's cancer um, got worse. And we would ask ourselves, should I have even joined the Jesuits, you know, gone into a, a 10-year commitment? And to be clear, they brag about how it takes longer to become a, a Catholic priest through the Jesuit path than it does to become a doctor. 
would I, why would I even start that if my dad had cancer? And well, we didn't, we didn't know at that time when I joined, we didn't know how bad the cancer would go. It could have gone, he could have gone another 10 years or he, or it, or what did happen, which was it got worse. And so I got the opportunity to spend another year or two. I think it was one year with him uh, in St. Louis. And that's when I was doing the behavior work in the inner city. So, um, connect the dots on how you get, how you land in Denver and, and you're teaching finance, teaching finance at the, um, Denver world trade center. Yes. That's how we get the introduction. Um, and now you're teaching finance for us. How, how did that path happen? It's, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it short. Um, it wanders around a little bit, but it's, um, I'll t- so it goes from, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the mission work. I'm working at a, you know, a school that was 100% black, 100% free or reduced lunch, which is, you know, the measure of poverty. And, um, and, and you're in the work and, and you can start to see how important those, the, the bigger decisions are, like is there enough money in the room that starts to become, or not, not in the room. I mean, you know, is there enough money in the system becomes a very important decision or an important factor. And so I found myself more interested in, and in looking around who, who are the, uh, you know, I'm again, I'm in my mid twenties. So I'm like, who are the adults that I want to be like? And it was the members of the board. It was still doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? Sophisticated and children as we are. Uh, when I and and we should all, I, I mean, I think everybody, you know, I, I think um, Edgar's cringing every time I use the word "should," but we should all have, you know, aspirations. We should have someone in our lives who's, you know, um, maybe twenty years ahead of us, and that's very inspiring. And we should have someone in our lives who's like three or four or five years ahead of us, who can, you know, shows us the immediate next steps from where we are to where we want to go. And so I wanted to be like, be like those members of the board who were wielding power to do good things. And that power came in the form of their networks. That power came in the form of their confidence, their, their, their own alignment, their understanding of, of aligning them, like how to align an, an organization to its mission and to execute on that at, at that higher level. And they, and they did something that I, they could do something that I had zero skills in at that time, which was they could manage finances and, and understand finances. So my next part of my journey was to go get a, an MBA with a concentration in finance from the great university at Tulane, uh, A.B. Freeman School of Business there, where I took uh, the Birken Road class that will inspire the cla- the, the, you know, my, my vision for what I wanted to do here at Regis. Yeah, that, that, that idea of modeling, it goes back to what you mentioned, Edgar, that, you know, a, a leader needs to model when you onboard, you need to model. Like there's a constant modeling, um, which is hard when you're bringing on all new people because nobody knows who to look for for the models. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's harder when you have a uh, single founder or a single leader that won't let anybody else model. We've seen those models too. Yeah. And it all goes through that one person. That, and that brings up the idea that uh, when you think about that role modeling and that reinforcement process, we, we talk you know, different strategies. So you might get connected more into financial strategy at some point or operationally what's possible in doing that. And um, so there's these different areas of strategy that we always wind up working with. The customer experience, right, which is product service development strategy, then market development strategy, marketing, selling, it, branding, et cetera, operational, financial, and then people and culture. And then there's the sixth strategy, which is leadership development. And so many organizations fall short because they just look at that as part of people development. They don't quite see how important it is to have people throughout the organization, especially as you scale, that are role modeling and reinforcing a set of behaviors that we expect from leaders that are in alignment to the mission, the values of the organization, and that, in a way, inform others just through observation. Uh, they inform, and um, that becomes a that becomes so critical. And yet, there isn't there there isn't enough of that dialogue, that conversation, 
I think in some organizations it's happening, but certainly there's a need for it across a lot of organizations, especially as we look up to someone at a certain, we're at a certain age, a certain point in our careers. There's that person at the top of the organization we look at, and in today's world, very often they're considered to be like a star, you know, a celebrity. Well, that's that's not always going to be attainable. Or you can't really get a sense of what, what that person is truly like. But the person you're working with directly or that's within um, within the context and environment that you find yourself in as, as far as leaders go, that's what makes that so critical, doesn't it? Yeah. And all this contrast with, you know, kind of uh, how we think about business more popularly, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we... we um, you mentioned this idea of being a star, right? We take the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates of the world. Uh, you know, right now we, you know, we've we created an idol out of Elon Musk, for better or for worse, right? And those companies, when you lose those, when you lose those people, you watch them spin a little bit. Yeah, sometimes they'll come out as well, and other times they actually come out a lot better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because they can be more grounded and, and it becomes more accessible. So now, Kurt, I want to come back to you. And so here you are now, you're teaching finance in the MBA program. Um, what's next? I, I feel like I, I want to spend a little time with what's in between getting my MBA with a, a concentration in finance from Tulane University and where I am now, because there's there's another decade in there. And it's it's the most recent decade to my life. And so it's way more... Like, I feel like what we've been talking about up to this point, to me, feels like ancient history. It's interesting it, how I, I'm, I'm, as we're talking about it, I'm reflecting on it differently than, than, uh, than I would have, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so I, I worked at a bank, uh, you know, I did the foreign exchange. That was the money changing. I loved that, that work. Uh, and then I moved into an investments role. Um, and I, and, and my pivot into the investments role is fun because I got the opportunity to teach, that's when I started teaching at Tulane. I started teaching an investments class at Tulane, and then I moved into the investments role. So that was people. People often people want to know how did I become a teacher, uh, a college professor, um, because they think they want to do that. And I will talk any one of them out of that. I will. I will, tr- <laughs> I will try, uh, and and only and and Ken wants in the classroom. Ken should only want the ones who have heard the reasons not to do it and still want to do it because you are. You are, uh, you know, you're, you're picking up a, it's a, a quixotic endeavor to teach. But the, um, yeah, so I, I've got a, right now, I'm making money three different ways. I'm a fractional CFO for a friend of mine, and uh, I, I kind of really like it. It's really like I'm building his financial model, and then I'm, you know, he's, he's never run budgets, so we're, we're setting up budgets so that he can, and I started with, you know, what was your big why? What do you want to, you know, and, and he had this, um, it's actually quite an inspiring vision, but he, but just in hearing it back from me, I think it, it amplifies the inspiration, the clarity that drives motivation and action. And it's, he wants to get a boat and go from, you can go down the Mississippi, you can go out of New Orleans, you can wrap around Florida, you can catch the, I guess, I don't know the Northeast very well, the Erie Canal, and and get into the Great Lakes and somehow get back to the Mississippi River. I don't know how you get back to the Mississippi River from the Great Lakes, but it's it's like a circle of the of the front half of the United States. They're on the boat. On the boat. Yeah. And so we, you know, I'm doing that. That's number one. <laughs> number two is uh, I'm I'm working at a startup that we that we that is the, it is the definition of alignment. The work that we do at the startup. It's called Head Start. And it's a, it's a piece of artificial intelligence. It's a, a keyword neural network that matches job applications to job descriptions. And we can process hundreds of thousands of job applications coming in and match them to the needs of, of our client, the, the, the business, and give it a match score. So to understand it, I would ask somebody, uh, if, if I gave you 200 resumes what would you do and the answer is you would use my technology to rank those resumes and then you would look at the 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 top 10 of that and and then you would continue on with your with the the common sense process of interviews and and however else you want to to discover the alignment but let the let the artificial intelligence do the the heavy lifting the hard work and so it's an automation technology that like saves money 
and time on the one hand, and then I call it the holy grail of business because it's actually doing really good on the other hand. It happens to have, you know, when as it turns out, it, this should be should not be surprising us humans, but it does, that when you take the human bias out of a process, you get better results. And by better, in this case, I actually mean more diverse. So we've uh, increased female hiring 20%, increased, uh, it's, an, it's a um, British company, so they measure racial diversity, they call them Afro-Caribbean hires, <laughs> increased that as well. And so it's, um, so we're doing good, saving people money, and, and uh, hopefully we can endure this, this upcoming recession that I think we're headed into. Uh, but, but, but my third and fourth, uh, my third way to make money and my favorite way, and, and the reason Ken and I know each other so well, is because I teach the best finance and investments class in all of Colorado. It's Anderson Reports. It's the capstone course of the finance concentration piece of the MBA program at Regis University, Anderson College of Computing and Business. And... Uh, it's amazing. We do a deep dive on a publicly traded company that's headquartered in Colorado. So we've covered four companies, and I'll name those shortly. But but to give a little context, um, some of the publicly traded companies that are headquartered in Colorado that you might have heard of, Dish is one of the big big boys. Uh, my wife works for Ball Corp, where your aluminum cans come from, uh, an, another one of the big boys. There are 13 analysts covering Ball Corp. And the companies we cover, we want the smaller guys I want the, um, so we've covered a company called um, Farmland Partners, Inc., and that is a farmland REIT. So I, I have fun with my students, and I when we pull up the financials, because they're publicly traded, you can see their financials. That's why that's part of the game here. And we look at them and say, where, where do they pay taxes? Trick question, REITs do not pay taxes, because REITs have to buy by the code of the, the law under being being a REIT, they kick out 90% of their profits as dividends. Those dividends will get taxed by the investors. So that's where the, that's, it's, it's not as if the government was going to not take its piece. Or we'd it, all be in, in, invested in REITs for sure. Right. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rare case where they're not doing double taxation. There's only single taxation on the, uh, on the dividend side. And, um, so we've covered FPI Farmland, and that one was our first one. It was one of the best because we scooped the Wall Street Journal. There's there's a narrative around that company, which I'll, I'll set aside, and we can pull it back up if you want. Um, we also So we also covered a company called uh, WOW, Wide Open West. Um, Teresa Elder was the, the uh, female CEO, which we love to see, and she um, had gone to Creighton University, so another Jesuit university and that might be why she was interested in connecting in so the jesuit network is is super powerful last i checked the numbers were something like um, 48 high schools and 24 jesuit universities that they were running but those numbers have changed i'm positive by by now and the other company we've covered was um riot r-i-o-t was the ticker and that was that one was hard. That one was uh, we we under, we hopefully communicated the risk to our to our readers uh, because that was a cryptocurrency company. They did one thing: they mined Bitcoin, but they were publicly traded, so it was a way for a public investor to get into Bitcoin without having to understand the wallet system. You could just go through the traditional financial system, and uh, you know that we we were covering them right before the crypto crash. And so um, they were at the time we covered them. They were turning. Um, I'm not going to get these numbers exact, but let's say sixteen thousand dollars worth of electricity. And they, of course, they would set up. And they were in West Texas, and they started in um, by a. Uh, there, there's a name for the electricity that that gets generated that is just not used at all, like the overcapacity, like if you have a um, a windmill, that's you know, putting it back in the grid. Yeah, you know, if, if, well, if it's right, if it's not going into a, a battery, then it's getting wasted. Or a, um, you know, they were they were next to hydroelectric. They started next to hydroelectric, but in West Texas, they were able to find um, solar and uh, wind very easily, mm-hmm. and so they could turn sixteen thousand dollars worth of electricity into a single Bitcoin, which at that time was selling at forty. I think we're in the twenty fives, twenty nines right now, and uh, they're making two hundred forty million dollars a year on that. So they're just printing money. Um, but I, I would challenge my students. I said, 
okay, so the class goes for 16 weeks. And for 16 weeks, I ask them every week, explain to me how crypto is not just pixie dust. (laughs) And the reason they're not able to do that is not just because they're MBA students and they're not that sophisticated with finance. It's because crypto, as far as we can tell, is just pixie dust. So as is fiat currency as well. I get it. Uh, I see this. I, we saw both sides of the argument, but that was a really hard company to predict the, where the stock was going. Um, so that was the only one that we were, um, you know, we didn't get the, the 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 call correct on. And this next one, this last one, and, and I'll, I'll take a breath after this. The um, we are covering this semester, Pure Cycle Water Corporation. These guys, um, they're here in Denver, of course, and they um, they're a water utility. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a nice little break from having done a done a crypto company, which nobody understands. Anybody who pretends to understand crypto is at some degree lying to themselves <laughs> or, or to the markets. And um, it can be understood at, at different levels, but we don't know what it's going to become, right? Be. Right, so I thought it was going to be an easy utilities company. Well, it's so we had, we co- had to cover water rights in Colorado. That's complicated. And then we discovered quickly that they had, um, they vertically integrated, which means they... They wanted to create their own customers. They became their own customers. So they, they became a land developer. They bought 900 acres east of Denver in a place called Sky Ranch. And they just became, they just started building houses. They, you know, they contract the builder. And, uh, and then they were, and then these guys are so, and then they got so good at, this is a, this is some form of diversification. Well, I'm, I'm telling the story that it's complexity to my students that they had to, you know, we had to do two industry analysis reports because they're in two in- completely separate industries, or not, yes, joined at the hip, but but very different. And then they went into a third, which was rentals. So some of the houses they were selling, and then some of the houses they're going to keep because they, and that's a beautiful hedge against in- interest rates because as we see interest rates going up, the you know, the housing sales, uh, in theory, will go down. Mortgages will go down as interest rates go up. That's just a thing that happens in the world. And so to to mitigate that, to hedge on that, they would go into rentals. So if interest rates go up, they can rent. If interest rates go down, they can sell. And I just, the, these you know, it's the story is so good that these companies, these smart people and these um fascinating business models are right in our backyard here in Colorado and their students get to go interview management. They get to go see, uh, that's my only ask of the company is to spend at least one hours. And they've all been, these companies have all been very generous with their time and they, they connect with the students and they, they really teach them that, um, you know, that business model and, and how the, and how the finances flow through it. The students have to make a, uh, a quite sophisticated financial model and, um, and and that that the model here's some of the alignment is that the model has to align to the strategy that the, that this the company is saying right. that they're going to pursue. All right, so they actually see the performance indicators that directly relate back to and inform the strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Kurt, as you as you talk about those those companies, uh, one thing that I, I've known about you, but I've never really been able, never said it out loud like this. And, and as you and I were talking about, you know, these financial models and then you build them and then they break and then you got to add something else to them. I, I think you enjoy that, though. I think that you enjoy the idea that I can structure something, but I'm still curious about what else is going in. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this, what you can't see is the big grin on his face. Yeah, totally. The whole time that you're talking about this, oh, Kurt, you're just grinning from year to year. There's, there's a, you know, there's a beauty in the complexity, but, but, and, but you should know the beauty's in the simplicity on the other side of complexity. I'm smiling because we're done, Ken, you know, the 16, <laughs> the, yeah, this, sure. this spring semester, the 16 weeks it's behind me. If you'd have caught me four weeks ago, I wasn't smiling one bit, didn't smile for, for three weeks in a row. No, I, I like the, you know, the, so there's the thing I teach the students is that the accountants prepare financial statements and financial analysts uh, read the financial statements. We're the consumers of the financial statements. And there's the difference between a, a finance number and accounting number is just it's the whole thing about like the, the again, the beauty of, of statistics. And I am teaching a four hour yeah, statistics, statistics workshop coming up on September, September 9th. 19th. 9th. 9th. 
9th, 9th. September 9th, the Saturday after um, Labor, Day. Labor Day. Yes. And there's there's a beauty in finance numbers because it's the future. We're predicting the future. That's fun. That's the piece. I, I love, you know, predicting the future. But I, And here's what I hear. Yes, and you also like if I find out something new that it's going to get mixed up. I, I think in our leadership work, in our work with cultures, mm-hmm. this is where people often get frustrated because they feel like I figured out the model and now I should just have to work. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of predictability and then having control. It's going to work the way I need it to. It's predictable. It feels, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of psychological safety that comes with that. Yeah. That when it gets disrupted, heads up. Yeah. yeah. When I, you watch the people that are, and I, and I think that grin that Edgar mentioned comes a little bit because you. Oh, you're excited about the work for sure. Yeah. The, the work is there, but also you're, you know that you're going to find out something new and something else needs to go in the model then. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just have, you just have to do that work. I mean, it's not, um, these things they're, they're living. I mean, any organization is living. There's, yeah, there's a balance between chaos and order. And you, you build the model and you think there's order, but I'm smiling because I, I maybe, you know, it's from my childhood trauma, but I like the chaos. Like, <laughs> right? Like, there's the title, Jim. I, I like the say. chaos. I mean, I, I and I, I have to check that, right? Like, because if, if you're a person like me listening to this and you like the chaos, then you need to be very careful that you're not creating the chaos. Because <laughs> the purpose, the meaning in life is going from chaos into the order. Um, but oh, yeah, and we can tie that back to your extroversion, too, and you already know that, so we don't have to go there a whole lot. But yeah, if there's not enough excitement around, if people aren't engaged enough, I'll find a way to get them engaged. I think one of the myths I break um, and near the end of the class is, uh, spoiler alert, is that we do all this work to come up with a model, and and it's very necessary, and you... It, what you're really doing is you're like, what is the assumption and how important is the assumption? Because those are two different questions. And, the, and that, that's everything, right? Having sort of having the model, having the formula that's laid out in front of you that should work. And then knowing that it's, no, first of all, knowing how precarious the, the, you know, how wild your kind of your assumptions are. Like, you know, like what's the, you know, what's the precipitation we're going to get in Colorado next year? That that's you know when you're covering a water company you're you get you you're predicting the weather and so you get into chaos theory and why you're why you why we thought at one point humans thought that we could you know if we just knew enough information we could predict the weather a year out and 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 we can't we just it seems like now it's like no well maybe we'll never get more than two weeks out for predicting the weather because. And so you get these predictions, but you th- if you think that the world around you is ordered and that the finance people and the and, and that they know, yeah, y'all are laughing because you know exactly where this is going. If you think it's all like that people have it figured out and it's clear or, or what's the word I'm looking for, that you can rely on these numbers or you're confident with these numbers, well, now once you've built them the way they're really built in the real world and you realize, oh, it's a lot of assumptions for one, and then you're predicting the future, and that's fun to try, and you're going to be wrong. You're, you know, when, we, when I was working in foreign exchange, you know, that we would, we're tracking the numbers, you know, the exchange rates down to the pip, which is the one ten thousandth of a number. And so I, the only thing we knew is that you could not predict that. Like, you would never <laughs> get that right. You, there's a zero percent. I'm sorry. It, it, how, how do I say this? If it's There's no such thing as a straight line, right? Yeah. <laughs> only in our imaginations. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. It, if you um, if you if you express it as a percentage and round it to the nearest whole number, it's zero <laughs> percent chance that you're go- like. So if you get the direction right, well then, uh-huh. like you know, if it's a random walk, you got a fifty-fifty shot. And I just like I, I, I just I think it's beautiful the way math describes reality and the way it plays out into business and it filters through our psychologies to become uh, our decisions and reality. Yeah, yeah. Because at some point when you think you just separated completely from the emotional aspect, you realize, yeah, the smirk on your face says everything correct. Not gonna happen. <laughs> Not gonna happen. It's all gonna it's yeah. So now, you know, my students, when when someone shows them a number, they should have the 
we should have developed their skepticism. Nice. And if, and, and if I get them to the next level, develop Curio- their cynicism. Well, that difference between <laughs> skepticism and curiosity, right? Well, curiosity, I mean, inquiry. Yeah. Uh, though I understand my skepticism and the source of it. That's a nice one to Maybe. tap into. Yes, for yeah. sure. Well, I'm Kurt, seeing it the way that I'm seeing it. Yeah, thanks for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your journey and the Anderson Reports. It's uh, uh, fantastic to have you share that with us. Thank you. And we're going to certainly have you back at some point so that we can get an answer to the question with your interesting background and your history and your journey, the what's next. And so we'll uh, look forward to, to hearing about that. I look forward to learning it myself. Ah, good answer. <laughs> good answer. Yeah, very well done. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining us out there uh, for True true Alignment. Uh, As always, questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, uh, truealignment.com. We're we're back now that we've had the the pause through the uh, first half of the year with uh, with life. With life. With life and living that. And uh, so we're back, and uh, you can look forward to our weekly podcasts again for the remainder of the year. And uh, with that, again, let us know. Questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, truealignment.com. Info at truealignment.com would be the email. Uh, and you can reach out to us uh, and, and let us hear from you. And we will get back to you, that's for sure. So thank you again. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Have a good day, everybody. Live aligned. Live aligned indeed. Kurt.gerwitz.com. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about our guest... <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about our guest today, um, uh. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about me, Kurt Gerwitz, go visit kurt.gerwitz.com. You'll be redirected, redirected to either my LinkedIn profile or my YouTube channel, or perhaps Anderson Reports. Awesome. <laughs> I'm using that. Oh, yeah, it's going down. <laughs>